The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces, for the sake of my brethren and companions. I will now say, peace be within you, because of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. Beautiful words. We are in Numbers chapter 16. I said last week it was two sermons in number 16, and that was not true. It's actually three. This is the second of three. Um, so here we go. Numbers 16, verses 16 through 35. This is entitled, Korah Meets His Maker. All right, 16. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel, who were around them, fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. 
and a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Well, if nothing else, today's passage is simply cool for the mental images it provides. It's like watching Raiders of the Lost Ark when the ark itself is opened and the main bad guys are melted and the rest of the offenders are burned up with fire. We can try to imagine what the actual events of the earth opening up looked like, and we, if we have a perverse side to us, can insert the faces of folks we may not be so fond of on the offenders standing at their tents, and then what it must be like to watch them drop right out of sight once and for all. Moses promised something new from the Lord, and the Lord delivered. Although the act of creation itself was a one-time thing, and nothing new is physically created since then, the Lord still creates new things out of what has been created. This is to demonstrate his character, his glory, and to continue to reveal his plan of redemption for mankind. One step at a time, the Lord brings out new things as he carefully unfolds his beautifully prepared tapestry of wonder. Our text first comes from Isaiah chapter 45. It's verse 7. I formed the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. As I said, while reading this passage, we can try to imagine what it must have been like to actually see. Although he is to be taken with a grain of salt on many matters, Flavius Josephus also has many insights into things which the Bible and which later history speaks of. As far as the passage today, he wrote about what the event looked like, adding in what is left unstated in Scripture. As I said, he's to be taken with a grain of salt, but I thought I'd share his words with you. He said, When Moses had said this, with tears in his eyes, the ground was moved on a sudden, and the agitation that set it in motion was like that which the wind produces in waves of the sea. The people were all affrighted, and the ground that was above their tents sunk down at the great noise with a terrible sound and carried whatsoever was dear to the seditious into itself, who so entirely perished that there was not the least appearance that any man had ever been seen there. The earth that had opened itself up about them, closing again and becoming entire as it was before, insomuch that such as saw it afterward did not perceive that any such incident had happened to it. Thus did these men perish and became a demonstration of the power of God. That's Flavius Josephus from the Book of Antiquities, Book 4, Chapter 3, Verse 3. Can I help you, ma'am? Mom's here. And so if you ever decide to make a movie about Korah, it would be a nice additional help in describing the scene for your certain blockbuster adventure. Whether what Josephus handed down is actually accurate or not, the story is a marvelous part of the life and times of Moses and the people of Israel as they lived out the punishment of rejecting the Lord's offer of Canaan. Instead of going in and taking over the land, they spent their lives in the wilderness, meeting their end there as well. With the noted exceptions of Joshua and Caleb, all 20 and over met their end. Some just met it in a more memorable and dramatic way, but none more dramatic than that of those here in Numbers chapter 16. It really is an unforgettable part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, the glory of the Lord appeared. It's verses 16 through 22. Verse 16, and Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. 
Moses now gives a repetition of the instruction that he has already directed, mirroring what is said in verses 6 and 7. His words are directly to Korah, which clearly set him apart as the leader of the insurrection. He initiated it, and therefore he is instructed to lead the men by informing them of the time, which is tomorrow, and the place before the Lord, that they are to have their challenge settled. He also reminds him of who is being challenged, which is Aaron. As a refresher, Moses means he who draws out. He is in the process of drawing out the will of the Lord concerning the priesthood. And as was explained in the last sermon, Korah or Korach probably means baldy. The idea of baldness is the opposite of that of hair. In scripture, hair signifies an awareness. Being bald then would signify either being naive or even empty-headed. The thought fits Korah rather well. Korah has no awareness of the danger that he is in, and he is naive about the will and purposes of the Lord. Moses is not, and he is not only drawing out the Lord's will, but he is drawing out the Lord's judgment upon rather empty-headed Korah. Verse 17, let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. Again, the words continue to follow closely with verses 6 and 7. Moses is directing that the challengers be ready for this challenge. There are 250 men, thus there is expected to be 250 censors brought forward. That is then in contrast to Aaron's single censor. Will the smoke of the 250 be found more pleasing than that of the one? This is what is to be decided. Because Moses already knows the outcome of what is going to happen, his appeal for every challenger to ensure he brings his own incense is a pre-appointed death sentence. As a review from last week, it is appropriate that the errors which these men will commit before the Lord be restated. First, they are not priests. Only Aaron and his sons could function as priests. Presenting incense before the Lord is considered a priestly function. Death is the anticipated outcome for such a violation of the law. If something less is received, such as will later be the case at the time of King Uzziah, that is an act of mercy. Secondly, because they were not of the line of Aaron, these men are not consecrated to conduct priestly duties. Both the lineage and the consecration was necessary. A person who was otherwise acceptable but not consecrated could still expect the Lord's wrath for their violation. Next, each took a censer. These were censers not fashioned for use in the sanctuary and which had not been a part of the consecration process. The word for censer is machtah. It comes from a root, which means terror, ruin, or destruction. It is a fitting concept in regards to what can be expected for such a violation. Fourth, they are instructed to come together to offer incense. Offering incense was a duty which was only to be conducted by one attending priest at a time. Aaron is a priest. He is consecrated to offer, and thus there will be 250 superfluous offerers. They will need to be taught a lesson concerning presumption. Fifth, incense offered in a censer is only specified as being done by the high priest. In the law, it is never noted as an offering made by anyone but him. The incense offered by the other priests was burnt in the golden altar, in the holy place, or along with the offerings on the brazen altar, but never in censers. Again, these men have not been consecrated for high priestly duties, and they should expect that their actions will be found inappropriate. Six, 
They are bringing their own incense, which is not in accord with what the Lord had prescribed to be burnt before him. The incense for the Lord was forbidden to anyone else. Should they make it, they were to be cut off from the people. Whatever incense they offered then was considered profane. Therefore, no matter how sweet the smell of the incense to man's nose, to the Lord, it would be considered an abomination. As Aaron pictures Christ in performing mediatorial duties, and as incense pictures prayers to God, then the symbolism is that of profane prayers being offered to the Lord through unqualified mediators. What is presented will not be pleasing, but it will rather be odious. Seventh, if they brought their own censer, then they also brought their own fire. Thus, their fire is also profane. The law shows that the high priest was to take the fire for the incense from the brazen altar, which had been sanctified by the Lord's fire. It is the same fire which had been ignited by the Lord at the time of the ordination offering. This is the fire that was never to be extinguished from that first time that it was lit. It is a celestial fire, having been sanctified by Jehovah himself. Instead of using this fire sanctified by the Lord, they will bring their own profane fire. The law was written, every infraction is to receive its just punishment, and high-handed sins were considered as capital crimes. As stated last week, Moses knows all of this. There can only be one outcome if the word of the Lord is a reflection of the will of the Lord. Bad times lay ahead for these dudes, and as if to avoid any unnecessary delay in getting to the point, the account next jumps from one day to the next without any further commentary. Whether there were excited, sleepless nights, or a party to celebrate the victory ahead, or sacrifices to false gods in hopes of gaining a favorable advantage over the situation, nothing is stated. One day has become the next and verse 18, so every man took his censer. One in accord with the law. 250 violations of the law, if presented as anticipated. Verse 18 continues, put fire in it. One in accord with the law. 250 violations of the law, if presented as anticipated. Verse 18 continues, laid incense on it. One in accord with the law. 250 violations of the law, if presented as anticipated. Like 250 sheep being led to the slaughter, the account goes through each step that was taken in disobedience to the law to show that these men truly deserved what was coming to them. Up until this point, they have done nothing wrong in their actions. People owned censers, people had incense, people made fires. And people combined the three into delightful times of enjoyment in their own dwellings. However, these men now take what they have prepared, stepped out of their comfortable dwellings, and have carried their arrogant offerings to the midst of the camp. Verse 18 going on, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Once their feet arrived at this place, with the offerings that are in their hands, there can be only one outcome which will glorify the Lord, establish the authority of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron, and properly punish the offenders. They have, by stepping before the Lord, signed their own death sentence. However, not realizing the danger of the situation and certainly hopeful of his soon-to-be-exalted position, Mr. Baldy, even more arrogantly, calls together an audience to witness the spectacle which will exalt him to the office of the priesthood. Verse 19, And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
Korah is so naive about what lies ahead that he let out a general notice to the congregation that they should all come and watch the spectacle unfold. Obviously, the entire congregation could not fit in the area outside of the tent of meeting, but the leaders would be close enough to peer in and see what transpired. Any other curious onlookers could have the word passed on to them. And if there were any hills near the camp, people could climb up there and watch. It was going to be a spectacle, and Mr. Baldy wanted everyone to see him rise up and prevail over Moses and Aaron. It is reminiscent of the crowd who gathered on Mount Carmel many years later, as is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. A challenge was made, the people were gathered, and the question was asked, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now the question is, if Moses and Aaron are the leaders, follow them. If Mr. Baldy is leader, follow him. The anticipation was high at both times, and in both, the true man of the Lord was vindicated through the action of the Lord. In this encounter, before the Lord acts, he makes his presence known. Verse 19 continues, Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. It is similar to what happened in Numbers chapter 14. There it said, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. That meant bad news for the congregation, especially for the spies who brought back a bad report. The appearance of the Lord this time will be no less so for those who have come against him. This is because those who come against his chosen leaders actually oppose him. The words, all the congregation, give an advanced hint of what the Lord means when we get to verse number 21. Verse 20, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the matter is all but resolved with these words. It is to Moses and to Aaron that the Lord speaks. Whether the voice is audible and addressed to them for all to hear, or whether the voice is only heard by them, any doubt about the Lord's intent for the continuance of these two in their positions is settled with his speaking directly to them. And the words are ominous. Verse 21, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. In Leviticus 9, at the time when the priestly ministry of Aaron began, it says that all the congregation drew near before the Lord for the presentation of offerings. Later, Aaron lifted his hands and he blessed the people at which time the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. At that time, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. The Lord had approved Aaron's ministry, and he had accepted the people's offering presented through him. Thus he approved of the people because of the mediator. That was representative of God's acceptance of us because of Christ's mediation on our behalf. However, the people have rejected Aaron and his mediation, and in type, they have thus rejected Christ. In this, the Lord's anger is highly aroused, and his words reflect exactly what he intended to do. Instead of consuming an offering mediated through his high priest, he intended to consume the people who presumed to back another high priest, not chosen by him. People who think that they have access to God apart from Jesus, God's chosen mediator, are wholly deluded. Verse 22, then they fell on their faces. In Leviticus 9, after the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the offering of the people, the chapter ended with, when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It is as if that passage and this were written with one thought in mind. The acceptance of Aaron means the acceptance of the people, and thus the rejection of Aaron means the rejection of the people. 
Now, instead of the people shouting and falling on their faces in acknowledgement of Aaron's ordination and the establishment of the priesthood, it is Moses and Aaron falling on their faces and petitioning the Lord for the people who have rejected Aaron's mediation. And yet they still determined to intercede and mediate for them. Verse 22 going on and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? It is obvious that more than one man sinned, but there is one main instigator of that sin who then encouraged it in others and in various levels. Moses and Aaron, understanding that the masses are easily swayed by a few, petition for leniency from the Lord. Though under different circumstances, specifically sinned by the leader of Israel, the petition here is reflective of the words of David towards the Lord when his judgment came upon the people. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. That's 2 Samuel 24, 17. In both instances, the men understood that the Lord is the creator of man and the one who endows men with the spirit and with life. To destroy the people is to destroy his own work. Matthew Henry says of this incident, See how dangerous it is to have fellowship with sinners and to partake with them. Though the people had treacherously deserted them, yet Moses and Aaron approved themselves faithful shepherds of Israel. If others fail in their duty to us, that does not take away the obligations we are under to seek their welfare. Their prayer was a pleading prayer, and it proved a prevailing one. I will dwell in them and walk among them too. I will be their God and my people they shall be. This is the thing that I promise I will do. Together we shall fellowship in the eternal sanctuary. Therefore, come out from among them, I say, and be separate, says the Lord your God. Do not touch what is unclean. From such you shall stay and be holy as I am holy in this walk that you trod. Then I will receive you and give you eternal waters. I will be a father to you now and always. And you shall be my sons and you shall be my daughters, says the Lord Almighty, says the Ancient of Days. Our second thought today is, if the Lord creates a new thing, verses 23 through 35. Verse 23, so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, in verse 20, the Lord spoke to both Moses and Aaron. It was with the intent of destroying the people. The fact that he now only speaks to Moses shows us that this is no longer the case. The people are safe from destruction. Well, most of them. Verse 24, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. In verse 21, the Lord told Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from among the congregation. Now, having accepted Moses' petition, he pronounces his judgment. Instead of consuming them all, there is an implicit warning for them not to be consumed. If there are perpetrators who led them astray, then only they will be punished. And so, by name, he identifies them. In doing so, a rather remarkable term, mishkan, or tabernacle, is used, and it is in the singular. The words literally read that the congregation is to get away from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This will be repeated in verse 27, again in the singular. However, it will also mention their ahole, or tents, in the plural in verses 26 and 27. To this point, the term mishkan has only been used when speaking of the tabernacle of the Lord, which is inside of the tent of meeting. 
It literally means a dwelling place. And so what is probably being relayed here is that the three, despite one being a Levite and the other two being from Reuben, had set apart a space for themselves as one dwelling place with their three individual tents. The Lord is thus contrasting their tabernacle with his. They have set themselves in their own tabernacle with their own hope for high priest. Last week, the name Dathan was explained to indicate their law. And Abraham as my father is exalted. In this, one can see these men naively or stupidly, Korah, following their own law, Dathan, and thus serving their father, the devil, Abraham. It certainly appears that this is what the Lord is indicating in his words to Moses. And it is borne out by the words of Jesus from John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. If this is so, and it certainly appears this way, I would say this then is picturing the synagogue of the Jews, which set their own laws and rules and customs in the Talmud in contrast to the revelation of God found in Christ. I say that because when Jesus rebuked them, they had all of their own traditions, all of their own things that they did, and they rejected the word of God. And he says, your father is the devil. And that's what they continue to do in the synagogues to this day. Thus, it is called by Jesus in Revelation, a synagogue of Satan. They are the tabernacle of rebellion. You see the two being contrasted here. This verse also seems to imply that the word of the Lord to Moses is probably not audible, but rather it is an internal word directed to him alone. This is because Korah is not next mentioned. Verse 25, Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. If the Lord's words to Moses were audible, Korah probably would have started running, and he'd still be running to this day in order to get away from the Lord. However, we are told that Moses went to Dathan and Abiram, and elders followed him. These may or may not be the 70 elders who received the spirit which was on Moses. There's no definite article in the Hebrew saying the elders. It simply says, and elders of Israel followed him. From this point on, the account does not specifically say what happens to Korah, whether he is destroyed with these two or if he dies with the 250. However, in Numbers 26, verse 10, it does say that Korah was, in fact, swallowed up with Dathan and Abraham. What probably happened then is that Moses had the elders grab Korah and bring him along with them. However, this is again debated by other verses, which will be stated later. Verse 26, and he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Here the word tents is used when speaking of their individual tents as property. The congregation is told to remove themselves from them, indicating that they are now unclean and thus devoted to destruction. This is made explicit with the words of verse 26 going on. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. In being rendered unclean and thus set for destruction, nobody was to touch anything that belonged to them. This is what occurred in Joshua chapter 7 at the destruction of Jericho. The city was declared harem or under a curse and was to be completely destroyed. However, Ahan took what was under the ban and thus brought himself, his family, and his possessions under the ban. They were subsequently burned with fire after they had been stoned to death. The men were condemned because of idolatry, the idolatry of self. 
They set themselves in opposition to the Lord's chosen leaders and thus in opposition to the Lord. In this, the Lord uses a different word than in verse 21, which is also translated as consumed here. It means to be swept away. In touching their unclean possessions, any others would be swept away together with the offenders. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's words concerning keeping away from idols practically mirrors what is occurring in this account. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Dathan and Abiram were said in verse 1 to be sons of Eliav. That name means my God is father. For these two, this was not the case. The Lord says that if we depart from such things, he will be our father. Lesson, do not touch what is unclean, and the Lord will, in fact, receive you. Verse 27, so they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. Here in one verse, both words, mishkan or tabernacle and ahole or tents are used and are unfortunately both translated as tents. What is being said is that the tents of these three was one dwelling place of iniquity set in opposition to the dwelling place of the Lord. Everything in the Lord's tabernacle was most holy. Everything here is holy, unclean. When it says that Dathan and Abiram came out, this doesn't mean that Korah is not there. He's already outside of the tent, probably having been brought with Moses. The commotion of Moses' arrival and his warning to those around them has obviously brought those inside the tents outside to see the events surrounding them unfold. This includes everyone, even to the little children, such as the curse upon them for what has transpired. However, it is noted in verse 2611 that the sons of Korah did not die in this event. All that tells us is they were old enough to have their own tents and they lived their own lives apart from their wayward father. Despite being one of the infamous scoundrels of Israel, the prophet Samuel and Heman the singer, both descended from this guy Korah. Further, the sons of Korah, meaning old Baldy here, are mentioned in the titles of 11 Psalms. Despite having success in later generations, Korah himself did not end well. Verse 28, then Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. The words here are often extended beyond what the context of the passage is speaking of. When Moses says all these works, most scholars that I read include everything from the exodus to the receiving of the law to the establishment of the priesthood and so on in what is said here. The disputed matter is that of the selection of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, the authority of the priesthood, the relegation of the Levites to the service of the priesthood, and the like. It's obvious that the Lord led Israel out of Egypt, and that he spoke out the Ten Commandments from Sinai, and so on. What is supposedly not so obvious to the people are the laws which Moses kept bringing out of the tent of meeting concerning all the other things. They're all saying, where are all these laws coming from? But that is faulty thinking on several levels. First, the people asked that the Lord not speak to them again as he did from Sinai, lest they die. Remember that at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Then, on several occasions, they agreed to do whatever the Lord said through Moses. 
And finally, the Lord showed his approval of the priesthood of Aaron when he consumed the offerings made through him, meaning Aaron, upon his consecration as high priest. In reality, the only ones to blame for the situation they were in are the people themselves. Moses has no true need to defend himself again, except in the sight of the forgetful people whom he led. And so once again, he will demonstrate that it is the Lord and not he himself who set Moses in the position of authority. And he will do so at the expense of the lives of those who have challenged him. Verse 29. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Moses gives two possibilities concerning the death of these men. The first is that of a natural death, like any man could expect. It might be by having a heart attack, or maybe choking on a durian seed, or maybe by simply dying in one's sleep. The second is that of a visitation by which men are visited. That might be by a stray arrow running through them, or contracting the plague, or maybe being run over by a donkey. In these, nobody would say, well, that was really out of the ordinary. The circumstances may be unusual, but not really beyond what one would expect out of normal life. In either case, if such was to happen to these guys, then Moses says that you can be sure that the Lord hasn't sent me. What is certain is that these men are going to die, but the way in which it happens will either leave a doubt about Moses or it will leave no doubt at all. And so, in order to make it absolutely sure that there is no doubt about it, he not only says that they are going to die in a completely unique way, but he tells how it will come about. And he tells it in advance of it happening. Verse 30. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and if creation creates Yehovah, here is a most astounding statement. The word beriah, or creation, is only found here in the whole Bible. It is a created thing, and thus something novel or new. It is something that never existed before. The word bara, or to create, is also rather rare. It was used in the early Genesis account, and then once in Exodus 34, verse 10. Here's what it said there. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The words have been done there are that word bara or create. I will create things through you is basically what the Lord is saying. The Lord created and then he finished his creation, but he promised Moses while on the mountain that he would create new things in and among Israel. Moses now promises one of those new things is coming in the destruction of these men. This is the type of marvel that the Lord said he would create. The people's eyes would behold marvels never before conceived of, such as, verse 30 continues, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit. The idea here is as if the earth itself comes alive. First, there's the word patsa, or open. That was only seen in Genesis 4 when the earth opened its mouth to receive the blood of Abel. Next is the word pe, or mouth. It is as if the earth is alive and opening to devour. And then there is the word bala, or swallow down. It's a gulping. This is what is said to have happened to Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. 
Moses combines these three thoughts into one graphic statement of their anticipated fate. They and all they possessed would go down alive into Sheol, the place of the dead, sometimes translated as the pit, hell, or the grave, depending on the context. And there was a purpose for this. Verse 30 going on, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Moses doesn't say that these men have rejected me. He says that these men have rejected the Lord. Again, as has been evident with each calamity that has befallen them, the rejection of Moses is a rejection of the Lord. Taking that to its logical conclusion, the rejection of the law, which came through Moses, is a rejection of the Lord. The wonders which have been seen in and through Israel, both positive and negative, have come about because of the promise of the Lord made to Moses on Mount Sinai. What is seen in the swallowing up of these men directly into hell and with their possessions and families accompanying them is simply a warning to all of Israel. And as Moses spoke of one to come who would usher in a new covenant, then to reject him and his greater covenant is to reject his Messiah. The wounds of Israel, even since Moses until today, are self-inflicted wounds. Such is certainly the case with what now occurs. Verse 31 Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them. The words indicate that Moses had spoken, and at that very moment, the ground beneath them split open. It wasn't something anyone could predict apart from the Lord, and yet it was prophesied in advance. Thus it must have been of the Lord. There was no time for apology or appeal. There was no time for shouting out a word of rebellion or of remorse. And there was no extended goodbyes to be made. The matter was spoken, the sentence pronounced, and justice was served. Verse 32, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. There is again confusion as to whether Korah is included here or not. In Deuteronomy 11 and Psalm 106, only Dathan and Abram are mentioned as being swallowed up. It appears to be purposeful that there is this mystery surrounding how he died. Was it directly into the pit or was it by the fire, which will be seen in a few verses? And scholars debate this. It could be that the Lord left this ambiguous for a reason, and I suggest that is the case. Stay tuned to an analysis near you. The fate of Korah is the fate of both of the camps aligned with Korah. In this one, it includes all the men with Korah. This would include any alliances that were not at the sanctuary, swinging their little censers, trying to please the Lord through fire. For this first half, their final fate is given marvelous detail. Verse 33, so they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. The earth opened, the earth gulped, and the pit of the earth received. Everything and every person associated with them was harem and was thus destroyed, forever to languish in the darkest of darkness and in the pit of corruption. Verse 34, Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. Depending on how deep the esophagus of the earth was before they arrived at the pit, and depending on the acoustics on the way down, this could have been a rather terrifying thing to hear. No matter what the details, the text itself says that the voices of the people as they went down were enough to cause those within earshot to get up and flee. So horrifying it was that they did not want to share in the fate if the ground under them started to give way as well. Moses had promised a new thing and the people saw 
something new. Meanwhile, back at the sanctuary, verse 35 finishes us up with, And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. The power of the Lord is not constrained to one event at a time. Rather, he opened the earth to swallow the rebels in the camp, and he sent forth fire to destroy the rebels at the sanctuary. In one, there is the sending of a heavenly fire to destroy those who came against the priesthood, which is a mediatorial duty between the earth and heaven. And in the other, he opened the earth to swallow the rebels who stood against the Lord's earthly ruler, swallowing them up alive. In each, there is a just punishment from the judge of all mankind, proportionate to the offense brought against him. And at the same time, there was mercy on those who were merely led astray by the offenders. In this double judgment, and as I have said already, the actual fate of Korah is not mentioned. Only inferences which seem to support both judgments can be made from other parts of Scripture. And so, as I said a minute ago, it could be that the Lord left this uncertain for a reason. The fate of Korah is the fate of both of the camps that are aligned with Korah. And that fate then comprises both fire and being cast alive into condemnation simultaneously. There is only one place in Scripture where this is actually seen to occur. Towards the end of the book of Revelation and at the end of the tribulation period, which is coming soon to a terrifying calamity on earth near you, we read this from Revelation chapter 19. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And the two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Korah stood against Moses and Aaron. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of their positions under the new covenant. He is the son over the house, and he is the high priest mediating for his people. The beast and the false prophet will both come against Christ Jesus, and they will receive the just penalty for their offense when they are cast alive into the lake of fire. Those with them will be destroyed as well, and the Lord will usher in a glorious time on earth where such things will be but past memories. For now, the fantastic details of today's passage are not a story of fiction made up as a lesson to scare us into obedience. Rather, the events are said to actually have occurred. And then the fact that they did are repeated, even during the life of Moses to the generation who would enter Canaan. If this story wasn't true, that generation would have known it to be false and they would have spoken against it. The reliability of the word is seen in its internal confirmations, and it is seen in innumerable extra-biblical confirmations as well. Of all of the events of Scripture, though, the surest of them all is that of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is testified to in so many ways within the Bible, both before and after his coming, that from a scriptural standpoint, no other option than the story of him being true is possible. I mean, there is no other option. He is further testified to extra-biblically as well, sometimes by hostile witnesses. Such testimony, then, is all the more reliable because nobody would testify negatively about someone that wasn't actually real. And so, stories such as today's point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is incumbent upon us to respond to the call to receive him. This is what I would implore you to do today. Don't let the day go by without making the decision to follow Christ. 
The Bible does not promise us tomorrow. Instead, the word is given. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Just this week I had a guy, a contractor, come in here to maybe look over some work to be done. And I talked to him about the Lord. I said, you're standing in the church. Let me ask you. And so we talked about the Lord for a while. And I closed my talk with him with that verse right there. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. You don't have tomorrow. As I told you at the uh, Thursday Bible study last week, I always tell you, you know, you're leaving church. You might get in your car and get run over. You might die on the way home and you don't know that. People watching online, maybe I need Jesus, maybe I don't. And I always give examples like leaving the church and getting run over or going up, pushing a button on a building and going up to the hundred and some floor and then jumping out because you have a choice of either dying by fire or jumping out to your death, which happened to a lot of people some years ago. Well, I'm always giving this example about leaving church and dying. And last Sunday, somebody sitting in this church right now had a cousin die in church in church last Sunday. They didn't even get out the door. We don't know our final moment. We don't know what's going to happen in our life. We need to be ready to meet our maker. And the case for Jesus Christ is so sound. It is so solid. If you just check it out, all you have to do is just check it out. You know, people like Simon Greenleaf, professor up at, uh, he started Harvard Law School. He was challenged by his students. Come on. You're the great, you know, judicial mind. You don't believe the Bible? Check it out. And so he did. And he became the leading, leading scholar of judicial apologetics in history. And he started and founded Harvard Law School. He was no dummy. And we had the guy that wrote the case for Christ. He didn't believe in Jesus. But somebody said, check it out. Or maybe he checked it out himself. I can't remember. Anyway, I watched the movie and I don't remember. But he wrote the book. And he defends Christianity everywhere he goes now because it is reliable. Please, if you have never considered your fate, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Please come to Christ and be saved. It's so simple. He died for your sins. He was buried. He came out of the grave for you. Those three things. He carried your sins into the grave. He came out without them. Your sins are gone and you are in Christ. You are covered by his blood. God will never look at anything but the precious nature of who you are in Christ again. Call on him today. I got a closing verse for you today from Psalm 106. It's verses 16 through 18. When they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Next week is number 16, 36 through 50. There is only one, just one, I say again. It is entitled The Mediator Between God and Men. That'll be our 32nd number sermon. Please ensure you know that. Somebody says, well, I think all paths lead to God. They don't. It's, one, it's not possible. God isn't, you know, he's not crazy like we are. There, God is one and he's very intelligent. He's not going to allow all these different paths to him. He's going to give us, he's going to reveal his intentions to us and he's going to give it to us. He's going to say, here, here's the path. And he did it himself, which makes it all the more marvelous. It's not like he just created an angel and said, here, you, you take care of the plan of redemption the way the Jehovah's Witnesses say. He himself did it. He united with human flesh and he took it upon himself. That is a loving creator. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. 
It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert wandering aimlessly. But the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I'm going to read you a poem about today's verses. But before I do, I have something that our friend from Georgia brought down for us. I'm always promising you things if you get the uh, question of the week. I'm, what do I usually promise? A Maserati. She brought you a Maserati. So whoever gets the question each week gets the Maserati. You can't take it home. It has to stay here, but you get the honor of the Maserati. Okay? So every week, if I remember to do a question of the week, I can see people yelling on their, I know it, I know it! Okay, this is the Maserati. Thank you for that. This will be here always for people to enjoy. The Lord says he's going to create a new thing. Now, the act of creation is done. There is no new creation. Everything he did, he did, and he rested. And that's done. But he creates new things with what has been created. He said, I'm going to create new things to Moses and Exodus, and then today he created something new. And then I quoted you one from Isaiah where it says the Lord creates a new thing, right? Well, there's another time in the Bible where the Lord is said to create something new. Behold, the Lord creates a new thing. Can anybody tell me where that is? Okay. If I get to the page before you uh, shout out, nobody gets a Maserati this week. Okay, hang on. It's very obscure. I want you to know that. So, hang I mean, it is. It's one of those verses you really have to read your Bible once to get to remember it. So, ah, I was picking on you. I'm kidding, of course. Anyway, what's that? Eight times. Eight times. Got to read it eight times at least. Okay, Jeremiah 31, verse 22. How long will you get about, oh, you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing. A woman shall encompass a man. And that's an obscure verse, isn't it? Nobody got it, so there you go. You know what? I forgot to do a question of the week until I was walked up here to start the sermon, and Jay's over here bothering me. I'm like, I got to think of a question. I got a Maserati to give away. And I, it came to mind while I was sitting there, so there you go. Sorry, nobody gets it this week, but it is fast. This is a beauty. It's been polished. It's been tuned up. Okay, here we go. This is entitled, Cora Meets His Maker. And Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron, then we shall see. Let each take a censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with a censer, according to this word. So every man took a censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron to see what would be the score. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation, expecting a warm and gracious greeting. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Yes, this entire disobedient nation. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, including this nation, shall one man sin, and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Ominous words he was then relaying. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him there and then. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, surely to you I say, lest you be consumed in all their sins this very day. 
So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram, these wicked men. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. You're all acting like spoiled little... Next rhyme, please. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by all men's common fate, then the Lord has not sent me. Then the record will be made straight. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them according to this word, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. Time to bid these folks adieu. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods too. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit, screaming in anguish. Certainly the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. And then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also lest we also die. And a fire came out from the Lord for a little more recompense and consumed the 250 men who are offering incense. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the lesson that we've been given here in this, uh, this passage. And we're to keep ourselves away from wicked people and doing wickedness. And that almost mirrors what we talked about in our Thursday night Bible study. It seems these things just seem to come into play at the same time to remind us and refresh us of our duty to you and to act in holiness before you and help us to do so, Lord. And Lord, we pray for all the people that were mentioned at the beginning of this service today. There were lots of uh, problems that uh, we brought up and we would pray that you would be with those people and help them. And we thank you for the blessing that you have given to those that we mentioned as well. And we certainly are thankful that Mabel's here with us today. She was sick on Thursday, and she's looking pretty good today. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that she's got a smile on her face once again. And Lord, be exalted in us through the conduct of our lives and help our conduct to be right and pure. Help each one of us to be examples to others of the glory who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.